Good morning, everyone. As you might expect, it was a little bit of a challenge for me to consider how we might spend our time together. It's been a tragic week, and I didn't want to just jump into our passage as if nothing happened. We lost a dear friend, and we feel that loss very deeply. But I'm confident that Jan would be the first to say, please, please don't dwell there. Let the truth of God's word bring comfort to your hearts. Well, I think in God's divine providence, it just always amazes me how he does these kinds of things. But I believe we're going to be able to do both this morning. Because the passage we will study in the life of David just so happens to speak of the testimony of Jan Whitaker's life. It is a story of loyal love, which may be the way many of us would describe Jan's legacy. He lived a life of loyal love. We saw that yesterday. This place was packed with people all the way into the foyer. So not only are we going to be able to see this being lived out in the life of Jonathan and David, but we have a real-life example right here in our church home with Jan Whitaker. I hope that what we'll look at this morning will be both comforting and challenging. Comforting because we're going to see the promises and the truth of God's Word. Challenging because we're going to need to put those truths into practice. Yesterday we talked about how Jan was not just a hearer of the Word, he was a doer of the Word. He put his faith on display. And my prayer for us this morning is as we hear God's Word and those truths that resonate in our heart, that it will be our deepest conviction to put those truths on display when we live our lives. So let's ask the Lord together that he might have his way this morning. Father, we want to come to you as best we can with surrendered hearts. Hearts that are open to your truths to transform us. To speak life, to speak hope, to speak comfort. I pray that we can also be challenged to be able to live life more consistently in a way that you've called us to, in the way we relate to one another, the, the world around us, that we would be different because of our time together and the truth of your word. So, Father, we just invite you to invade this space, our hearts, and we pray that it would bring glory and honor to you. We ask this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Um, Want to look at chapter 18, verse beginning in verse 1 with you. We skipped past these verses, and this morning you'll understand why. Uh, chapter 18, verse 1, if you would, follow along with me. It says, Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the son of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was, uh, robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. These four verses help us understand the depth of the relationship between Jonathan and David. It was a friendship that was galvanized by a covenant promise. 
Jonathan is ceremonially handling, handing everything that belongs to him over to David. And I think we should read that and ask ourselves, why would he do that? Why would he willingly give what is rightfully his to someone else? I think the NIV actually helps us answer that question a little better. Instead of saying Jonathan's soul was knit to the soul of David, it says that they are one in spirit. In other words, Jonathan and David shared the very same faith. Before surrendering his rights to David, Jonathan surrendered his life to the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord that came upon David was also upon Jonathan. They were one in spirit. The foundation of their friendship was a shared faith in God. And Jonathan's actions are simply affirming God's plan for David's life. So yes, Jonathan is surrendering his rights to David, but before he did that, he surrendered to the will of God. His actions are an evidence of his faith. And so really, what we see in the life of Jonathan and David should be equally as evident right here among each other. As I thought about this passage this morning and how we often look at the friendship between Jonathan and David and we kind of set it apart as something unique and special. But really, it shouldn't be special in the context of a church family. What we see in the life of David should be just as evident in the life of who we are as brothers and sisters in Christ. How do I say that? Because we are one in spirit. You don't have to turn there, but Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 says this. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel you may remember in that same letter uh, paul writes and and tells us to regard one another is more important than yourself to consider the needs of others is more important than your own that's precisely what is happening right here in the friendship between jonathan and and david it is an example i feel firmly convicted that should exist among all believers as brothers and sisters in Christ. Our love should always seek the highest good in others. Now, there is one aspect of what we see in these verses that is unique to that culture, but very significant to our understanding. In verse 3, it says that Jonathan made a covenant with David. We need to understand that this is more than just a a verbal commitment. A covenant vow was a self-sacrificing promise. It it usually took place ceremonially, where there would be a sacrificial animal that would be killed and literally split in half, one half opposite the other with a path in between. And the two people making the covenant would pass through that sacrifice together, saying to themselves, May it be done to me as it has been done to this sacrifice if I am not faithful to you. It's not just a verbal commitment. It's a self 
self-sacrificing promise. They are literally putting their lives on the line for each other. An unconditional commitment to seek the highest good of the other. Even at the highest possible cost to oneself. And we actually looked at how John, or yeah, Jonathan begins to put this into practice. If you want to, turn to chapter 19. We've already looked at this passage together, but let me remind you of what took place in these verses. Jonathan put his life on the line to defend the character of his friend David before his father Saul. Now, remember, Saul has made his evil intentions very known by this time. He's tried to pin David to the wall at least three times. He keeps forcing him to the front line of the battle, hoping that he would die. And now here in verse 1 of chapter 19, we learn that he's commissioned Jonathan, his son, and all of his servants to put David to death. Saul wants to murder David. Why? Because he sees David as an enemy to the throne. So when Jonathan stands up for David, he is conspiring with an enemy to the throne. He is putting his life at risk in defending the character of David. I want you to think about that for a second. Jonathan is confronting a man who is absolutely filled with pride. He is challenging the actions of a selfish maniac. David is putting his life on the line when he goes to defend his friend David. He's risking his life to fulfill his promise. Fortunately, as we remember from this story, Saul had a moment of sanity, didn't it? And in that moment of sanity, he agreed that what Jonathan was saying was true, and it was true. And so he decided not to put David to death until David began to prosper once again, and Saul's anger and jealousy turned to rage. But we need to understand that what we see in chapter 19 is Jonathan putting his promise into practice. He was willing to risk his life in order to defend his friend. And as we will see, it's not the last time that will happen. So if you would, turn over to uh, chapter 20. Chapter 20, and as you do, let me kind of bring you up to speed as to what has happened. At this point in time, David is on the run. He has fled from Saul's spear, and now he's running from Saul's men who are seeking to take his life. Remember, Saul sent his servants in to kill David while he was asleep. What a coward. But Michael, his wife, caught wind of that plot, and so she let him escape through the window. And David was able to get away from that initial attempt to take his life. But now he's on the run. The first place he goes is to find uh, Samuel the prophet. And after finding Samuel, people get word of where he's at, so Saul sends his men to go kill and hunt him down there where he's at with Samuel. So David flees to another city. And now he's going to go speak with his friend Jonathan. Let's look at that conversation beginning in verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth to Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? Now I'm going to pause here because I think this is absolutely 
remarkable. Did you notice David's default assumption? He didn't go to Jonathan and say, Jonathan, what's up with your crazy dad? Why in the world is he seeking my life? I mean, good grief, I've done nothing wrong. What's his problem? Not what he said. His default position was not to blame others. His default position was to look at his own heart first. What does he say? He says, what is my sin? What have I done to deserve your dad's wrath? David is looking at the log in his own eye before he attempts to take the speck out of someone else's. I think this is remarkable. And I think it's remarkable to see David examine his own heart before he casts blame on someone else. Let's look at how it continues in verse 2. And he said to him, Jonathan said to him, from it, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It's not so. Yet David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do. Now, Jonathan might be a little naive here, right? But in his defense, he has spoken to his dad before. His dad has listened, however short-lived that might have been. And at the very least, Jonathan feels like he'll at least disclose to him anything that he's planning to do. But David's not so convinced. <laughs> and we can understand why. He's been on the sharp end of that spear, right? So he's pretty certain that Saul intends to take his life. But one of the things that I want you to see in this very special friendship, this covenant relationship that we share with one another, is the mutual deference that they give to one another. Even though David and Jonathan are on opposite ends of this issue, they still listen to one another. They give each other a chance to speak. They listen with an intent to understand the other person's point of view because one of the key qualities of a covenant relationship is mutual respect and in the end they just come up with a plan that helps determine who might be right look at verse 5 so David said to Jonathan behold tomorrow is the new moon and I ought to sit down and eat with the king but let me go that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening if your father misses me at all then say well David earnestly asked to leave me of me to run to Bethlehem his city because it is the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family and if he says it is good your servant shall be safe but if he is very angry know that he has decided on evil therefore deal kindly with your servant for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you but if there is iniquity in me Put me to death yourself, for why then should you bring me to your father? I want you to notice the covenant language that is being spoken here in verse 8. David is essentially giving Jonathan permission to take his life if there is any deception or sin in his actions toward him. He basically says in, in verse 8, put me to death. If there is sin in me. 
I want you to see is that this covenant relationship is not unilateral. The commitment that Jonathan made to David, David is making to Jonathan. The Hebrew word in verse 8 is the word hesed. Now, you've kind of got to clear your throat when you say that word. <clears throat> and we're going to say it together because you need to learn some Hebrew this morning. You ready? On three, one, two, three, hesed. Wonderful. It's a great group of Jewish people here. I'm so excited. That, that Hebrew word means loyal love. It's one of my favorite words in all of the Scripture. David is pledging loyal love to Jonathan, just as Jonathan pledged loyal love to him. And what we're going to see is that this is an ongoing theme of the relationship between Jonathan and David. The plan David suggests is centered on Saul's reaction to his absence at the table, which if you stop and thinking about it, is ludicrous to even consider, right? Why in the world would Saul even consider the fact that Jonathan might show up back at the table if he's tried to kill him, sent men to hunt him down? Why would David come back? Well, the only resolution I can come up with in my mind is that selfish people are often blind to their own sin. Selfish people are often blind to their own sin. Unlike David, who was quick to examine his heart first, Saul doesn't even take a look. He's just intent on the evil hidden in his heart. But David knows the emotion of Saul will reveal what is in his heart. His reaction to David's absence would tell the story. Remember, we talked about this in recent weeks. It's like the dials on the dashboard that tell you something's wrong with the engine, right? That's the truth that is built into this test by David. What we see on the outside will reveal what's going on in the inside. Now look at verse 9. And Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you. Then would I not tell you about it. Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? And Jonathan said to David, Come and let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow... Or the third day, behold, if there is a good feeling toward David, shall I not then send to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, will you not show me loving kindness of the Lord? that I may not die. And you shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. And Jonathan made, a, uh, made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. I told you that this loyal love would show up repeatedly in this story. Every time you see loving kindness, it's that same Hebrew word, hesed, loyal love. If you look back at verse 13, Jonathan is making the same commitment to David as David had made to him. 
He says, may the Lord bring the harm my father intends for you onto me if I'm dishonest. In other words, put me to death if there is sin in me. Jonathan is pledging loyalty to David just as David pledged loyalty to Jonathan. But I also want you to notice the increasing evidence of Jonathan's faith. As we saw earlier, he submitted his rights to the Lord by surrendering his right to be king. In fact, he is so certain that one day David will be king, they extend that promise, that covenant vow that they made with one another to one another's descendants, the ones that will then follow. You see, the cultural expectation of a new king is to destroy all members of a rival family. This was a common practice, you need to understand, in every nation that was ruled by a king without exception. And the thing you need to understand is David is not a direct descendant of Saul. And so any of his direct descendants would become rivals to the throne. They would have a family descendant right to that throne. So the easiest way to deal with that issue is to destroy them all. So then you take away all the rivals and assume that throne yourself. But a covenant takes precedent over culture. Jonathan and David are not ruled by worldly traditions. Instead, they have both submitted to the righteous rule of God. And so they will break with those worldly traditions in the promises that they make to one another. Jonathan hands over the rightful heir of the throne that he has and gives it to Jonathan. David promises to protect all of Jonathan's descendants. They go over the plan and they determine the best way to communicate the results. I want you to look at verse 18. Then Jonathan said to him, tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. When you have stayed for three days, you shall go down quickly and come to a place where you hid yourself on that eventful day and you shall remain by the stone of Ezel. And I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And behold, I will send the lad saying, go find the arrows. If I specifically say to the lad, behold, the arrows are on this side of you, get them, then come for there is safety for you and no harm as, as, as the Lord lives. But if I say to the youth, behold, the arrows are beyond you, go for the Lord has sent you away. As for the agreement which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between us, between you and me, forever. So David hid in the field when the new moon came, and the king sat down to eat food. And the king sat down at his seat as usual, in the seat up against the wall. And Jonathan rose up, and Abner sat down by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did, speak, did not speak anything that day, for he thought, well, it's an accident. It's not clean. Surely... He's not clean. Must be some excuse. And it came about the next day, the second day of the new moon, that David's place was empty. So Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan then answered, well, David asked to leave, me, leave of me to, to go to Bethlehem. For he said, please let me go, 
since our family has a sacrifice in the city and my brothers are commanded me to attend. And now, if I have found favor in your sight, please let me go that I may see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan and he said to him, You son of a perverse woman, you rebellious man. Do, not, do I not know that you're choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore, now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. Selfish Saul expected David to be at the table after all the harm that he intended. And his angry emotions revealed the cruel intentions of his heart. And those intentions are made explicit in verse 31. I want David dead. But we also see that once again, Jonathan is risking his life to protect his friend David. See, after cursing his mom and regretting the day he was ever born, he's just basically taking every insult out of the book that he could cast at his son, he then looks at him and says, and by the way, I know what you're doing. Look at verse 30. Do I not know you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame? In other words, Jonathan, you're not fooling me. I know what you're up to. Saul knows. Jonathan is conspiring with the man that he considers to be an enemy to the throne. I'm shocked that Saul doesn't execute his son right there on the spot. There is no good reason why he shouldn't, given all we know about him, other than the fact that Jonathan is protected by the sovereign hand of God. That's the only explanation I have. But verse 31 tells us a key difference between the mindset of Saul and that of Jonathan. Look at that again. Verse 31. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Neither you nor your kingdom. You see, for Saul, this is all about preserving his legacy. This was his kingdom. Jonathan was his son. And it was his rule that must be established. This is about you and your kingdom. But that's not the way Jonathan saw things. For Jonathan, this was about God and God's kingdom. Saul is fighting against God's will. Jonathan has surrendered to God's will, even at great personal cost to himself. Unlike Saul, Jonathan was not a man who was out to make a name for himself. This was not about achieving personal goals or realizing great success. This was about fulfilling promises. This was about following God's plan, even if it cost him his life. Let's look at how this ends. Verse 32. But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at his own son to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger 
and did not eat food the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. Now it came about in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field and they did exactly as they had said they would do. And then in verse 40, then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, go bring them to the city. When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed each other and wept together, but David more. Jonathan said to David, go in safety. And as much as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants, then he rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. I think when we read this, we need to see that there is great security in the context of a covenant promise. Their world was spinning out of control. David is surrounded by hate. And yet his friend Jonathan looks at him and he says, go in safety. How can he say that? There is a selfish maniac hunting him down, wanting to take his life. How can he say, go in safety? Well, look at what Jonathan says again in verse 42. Go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. I think Jonathan does two things here. One is he reaffirms the covenant promise between him and David, between me and you, the promise that we made together. But he then goes on to affirm the assurance of God's plan because he talks about my descendants and your descendants, those that come after me and those that come after you. There is safety in the security of God's plan because it is protected by a covenant promise. Even when things are spinning out of control, God is at work. Our hope, our hope is found in the promises of God. There is protection in the security of a covenant promise. Now, I can't think of how that truth might be more significant than what we experienced as a church family this last week. Linda told me, she said, this has been hard, but we have been so well loved and so cared for by this church family. Why is that? It's because we are bound together by a covenant commitment of love as brothers and sisters in Christ. And what we see being lived out in the life of Jonathan and David should be equally as evident in the life of this church. Our love should always be self-sacrificing. Where we're considering the needs of someone else is more important than our own. I couldn't help but notice on Monday as I stood in the hallway of that SICU and saw room after room after room of people in critical condition. Most of them alone and there wasn't a room big enough to fit all the people who were there for Jenny all his family all his church family as I mentioned yesterday that says as much about him as it does about us Jan was a great man and he was surrounded by good people because of that 
but that's how loyal love works. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, it says, love one another with brotherly affection. And get this, it goes on to say, and outdo one another, showing honor. Loyal love always works both ways. Loyal love is self-sacrificing. It always has mutual respect. This is listening with an effort to understand another person's point of view. It's always seeking to understand as taking precedent over being understood. You see the difference? I hope we do because I think that's one of the biggest problems we have in our world today. We're so busy trying to make our own point that we don't stop to listen and hear someone else's perspective. Loyal love always shows mutual respect, which at a fundamental level means that you're willing to listen. I bet if you ask Linda and her family, they will tell you that they were not most comforted by the things that people said, but they were most comforted by the people who were willing to listen, to hear their heart, to share their sorrow, to have fun at the stories that they would tell. Covenant love is self-sacrificing. It has mutual respect, and it always takes precedent over culture. I think this is most important in the context of a tragic loss, and we've had our fair share in this church family. How do people get through the unexpected death of someone they love? See, our culture doesn't have an answer for that. They simply do not have an answer for that. They seek solace in seeking vengeance. But we know that even if you get what you want, it won't heal your heart. It doesn't make your grief any better to see someone else get what they deserve. Getting justice doesn't remove pain. For us as believers in Jesus Christ, the only way that our hearts are healed is if we can see redemption in the midst of tragedy. So that when we look at the cross, we don't just see an unjustified, cruel crucifixion. What do we see? We see a payment for sin. We see a victory over death. We see a resurrection from the tomb. We see redemption in the midst of tragedy. And that's because God made a covenant promise. We see that being played out in Genesis 15. And listen to me closely as we walk through this together. Genesis 15, God makes a covenant promise with Abraham. And he says, I make this promise to you, Abraham, and to all your descendants. And we find out later on that those descendants include those who share in the faith of Abraham, which includes me and you. But very, something very special took place in that covenant ceremony as those sacrifices were split in half and that path was made between. There were not two people who passed through. There was only one, and it was God. God made a unilateral covenant promise to Abraham and all his descendants. Listen. Listen to what he's saying when he does that. May it be done to me if you don't fulfill your promise. May it be done to me as it has been done to these sacrifices if you don't fulfill your promise. In other words, put me to death for the sin that is found in you. 
that promise was fulfilled at the cross. Jesus became the sacrifice for our sins. The covenant promise was fulfilled at the cross of Jesus Christ. But it did not end there. Because our hope is realized through the resurrection of Jesus. Not only did he pay the penalty for our sin, but he overcame the power of death. Which, listen to this, means that the promise, the promise that God made to Abraham in the very beginning includes eternal life. It's not just the payment for our sin, it is the promise of eternal life. And the reason I know that is because of what he says in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is given as a pledge of your inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's possession to the praise of his glory. When I think about Jan, when I think about Jake and Kennedy, when I think about my own brother. I know, losses like that can be overwhelming. They were losses that we didn't see coming. But we don't grieve as the world does. We don't grieve as if we don't have hope. We are comforted by the assurance of a covenant promise. And that promise includes eternal life. That is the hope that we stand on. Like the song we sang yesterday, in Christ alone, no guilt in life, no fear in death, that is the power of Christ in me. Covenant takes precedent over culture. We see redemption even within the greatest tragedies. That's our hope. So, as I said in the beginning, I can only pray that you are comforted this morning by the truths of God's promises. But I also pray that you will be challenged by those same truths. Yesterday we talked about the great attribute of Jan who put his faith on display. He was a man who didn't just talk about it, he lived it. And this room was filled with people who were impacted by it. And I would say to you, go and do the same. Live out your faith. Hold on to the covenant promise of God and live boldly for the name of Christ. That's what we are called to do. And that affection that we see being played out in the friendship between Jonathan and David should be repeated story over and over and over again in the life of this church. Because we are of one spirit. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Father, what a legacy of loyal love. That puts your love on display. We see that in so many examples within this church family. And I pray that today we are emboldened to live that out even more faithfully. I thank you for your truths that bring comfort to our hearts in a deep time of need. But I also pray that they bring challenge to our lives. Even as we face the reality of mortality to see that As Byron mentioned, we don't have any guarantees about what the future holds for us, so may we not take anything for granted 
living each day to the fullest. Not for our kingdom, but for yours. Not for our name, but for yours. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great day.